A few months ago, uh, I had the scariest moment yet in my young parenting journey. Uh, my daughters are popping up on the screen, so you can get a kind of taste of what my family looks like. And so that's Lena, my two-year-old in London. She's a little bigger now. And it was uh, anywhere from six to eight months ago. I don't even remember if my, my other daughter was born. I just remember the uh, traumatic experience this moment was. And so my wife was downstairs in the basement. Uh, I was on our main floor. And I heard my daughter yell, mommy, mommy. And so, and it looked like to me, she was running downstairs. So I was like, okay, Bree's gonna watch her for a little bit. And so I took that as my cue to run upstairs. Uh, the next day was trash day. So I was gonna compile all the trash from our upstairs area. And so uh, I, I go up and I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm getting all the trash ready. And I come downstairs and the door that leads to our garage is open. And I'm like, okay, no big deal, because nine times out of 10, our garage door shut, and my daughter doesn't know how to open that yet. Well, uh, because I was doing the trash and our dumpster's outside, I forgot I left that door open too. And so uh, our doors are wide open, both like man door and garage door. And so I hollered downstairs real fast. I was like, Brie, Lena's with you, right? And she said, no. And I said, you're kidding. Brie, Lena's with you, right? And she said, no. And I don't know if she heard the panic in my voice or what happened in that moment, but, uh, but like she runs upstairs. I run to the back of the house just surveying. We have a fenced-in backyard. And I was like, maybe she's back there. And she wasn't. So I bolt out of the house, and, I, and I'm freaking out. In that time, I realized my dog is missing too. So this means my, uh, my daughter opens the door. My dog runs out. She runs out with him. And I'm looking, and I'm surveying. I see an Amazon guy. And so I see this big van. I'm like, he better not. And, uh, and so I run to the back of the, uh, the backyard in between my fence and my neighbor's fence. And we have this massive field in our development. So I'm just searching and screaming, Lena, Lena. And I see another guy in the distance uh, with a little girl. And I'm, so I'm like, my heart's jarred, but I get a little closer. Uh, he's with his own daughter. And, and when I like almost like lost it, I finally look to the side and my daughter had climbed up the little stairs and unzipped the protector piece of our neighbor's trampoline. And she's jumping on their trampoline and my dog's running in circles underneath her. And, uh, and oh my gosh, I, I was so absolutely terrified in that moment. Now, if you're like me, I, I hate losing things and I lose things often. I lose my keys a lot, I lose my phone a lot, I lose my wallet a lot. Uh, my favorite thing to do when I lose things is, is blame my spouse. Anybody else, you know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and so I lose things a lot. I've actually heard it's a sign of intelligence. I don't know if it's true, but I'm gonna hold on to that, right? And, and so, but nothing uh, compares to the dismay and the fear caused in that two to three minute, minute window when you can't find your child. Uh, parents, wave at me, you've been there. Anybody ever had that happen? And uh, what I wanna do today is I wanna talk to you about uh, the parable of the prodigal sons. And yes, I say that intentionally. Um, this is known by many throughout the, throughout the centuries as the evangelium and evangelio, fancy way of saying the gospel within the gospel. Some chalk this up as Jesus's most masterful teachings that show his sheer intellect and so I want to dive into this story, but in order for us to understand where we're going, my message today is called Prodigals and Party Fouls, uh, and I want to kind of set the tone for you and give you the backdrop information that you need to know before we jump into this parable. So if you're tuning in from our Lorraine campus, and you're, especially if you're baptized today, I want to say congratulations. If you're at our Olmstead campus or just tuning in online, I want to welcome you to our time together. Let's go ahead and dive into God's Word 
And so first thing you need to understand about this parable is the audience in whom it's written to. So we see in Luke 15, one through two, the Bible says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus has this mixed bag crowd uh, of Pharisees, tax collectors, the worst and the lowest on the society's uh, totem pole, and and just uh, blatant sinners. So this is who it's written to. Uh, The second thing you need to understand is the shock factor of the fact and the reality that Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, There was an old rabbinic junction that actually said this, the wise say, let not a man associate with sinners even to bring them near to the Torah. And so you can see uh, the backdrop of why some Pharisees and religious leaders believed in what they believed, that because old rabbinic literature said you shouldn't be caught dead with sinners and tax collectors, nonetheless eating with them. And uh, one scholar makes the argument that, that uh, the word used here for Jesus receives or welcomes actually implies that he's hosting them. And so this is a big rabbi no-no. You do not host that type of riffraff. The third thing we need to understand is that the parable of the prodigal sons is the third parable of lost things becoming found, that Jesus tells us to really illustrate a point to his mixed bag audience, right? So he has these people that are murmuring and muttering, oh, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is about to uh, go off, if you will, and he's about to tell three parables that each one builds upon the next, and they're crescendoing into this this massive climax, uh, and he's looking for the jaw drop moments to come from his listeners. The fourth and final thing that's really important, uh, you need to uh, not miss this easy easy to overlook theme of joy. Let me explain. Uh, Luke 15, six through, or excuse me, five through seven, this is the story of the, uh, the sheep that's gone astray. It says, and when he finds it, that is the shepherd, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then we move forward to the parable of the woman who misplaces a coin, so she has a lost coin, and this is what it says in Luke 15, nine through 10. And when she finds it, the woman that is, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I'm not very good at math, but that's five times that joy or rejoicing is mentioned in those two parables. And so joy is gonna be kind of the linchpin that pulls these parables together. And notice, it's not just the individual's joy who finds it, uh, who finds the lost sheep and finds the lost coin. They want to take it one step further and get the community involved in their joy. So now that I've kind of caught you up to speed, the gospel within the gospel. Luke 15, 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have found food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is a, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful story that Jesus ever tells. It's a parable, so it's not an actual true story, but it's meant to depict a true reality. Right, And so just to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying in this uh, moment, we have to kind of culturally, historically unpack uh, the the depth of the things that Jesus is saying right here. Starting with uh, this uh, idea of a son asking his father for his inheritance prematurely. Uh, There's going to be a book I reference quite a bit. Uh, It's called Poet and Peasant and Through Peasant Eyes. It's by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. It's two commentaries packed into one. And uh, Bailey's a really interesting scholar because he spent the majority of his time in the Middle East. So anytime he got a chance to ask Middle Eastern men about this parable, he did so. And this is what usually happened when he asked them about what a son ever asked for his inheritance early. Check it out on the screen. He says, has anyone ever made this request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? This request means he wants his father to die. So when the son asks his dad for his inheritance prematurely, it's the equivalent of saying, Dad, I'd rather you be dead. And uh, not only would this request hardly ever be made, so actually in the note section in his book when he's talking about this, Bailey says only two times during his work in the Middle East did he ever hear of a story where this actually happened. The first one was a farmer whose oldest son asked him for the inheritance, and uh, the farmer drove him away from the family farm. Uh, and the second one, uh, this guy goes up to his pastor and he says, uh, Pastor, I don't know what to do. My son wants me dead. And three months later, the father actually did die. And when the pastor uh, was following up with the man's wife, he said, what happened? And she said, he died the day that his son made the request. Um, So this didn't happen. This is super rare that this this, this incidents would ever happen. 
Uh, but if it did happen, in the slight little marginal percent that it would, the request would never be granted. And yet Jesus is depicting this father who's symbolic of God, and he's saying that this is what this father's like. Even when he gets a request that would kill him inside, even when he gets a request where he knows this is bad news for his son, he loves us so much that he gives us even the bad things we asked for because this father doesn't want robots. He wants us to use our free will to choose him. So the son makes this request. He sells everything he has. He travels to a distant land and uh, inflation hits. he, he spends all his money, makes some bad investments, famine hits the land, and he's in, he's in deep trouble. And so he goes and he hires himself out as a worker, and he's working with the pigs. This is the Bible's way, this is Jesus' way of saying he's not only left his family of origin, but now he's left his, his religion of origin too, because Jews are kosher, and you don't mess with pigs. And so this is a sign that he's at the deepest, darkest place he could possibly be in. And it's in this moment where he's just longing to eat the food of the pigs, that he comes to his senses, and he says, man, even the hired servants at my daddy's farm have it better than me. What am I doing here? So he thinks up this uh, repentant kind of spiel. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you just take me back as a hired servant? He gets all the courage, all the gusto within him, and he goes back to his village, mindful, be mindful of this, that um, he didn't just have to face his father, y'all. He had to face his whole entire village. After he's done the most shameful thing one could do in their culture. And then the Bible, Jesus, Jesus depicts the father in a way that, that Pharisees' jaws were dropping and tax collectors probably had tears in their eyes and the religious, the religious of their day didn't know what to do with. He says that while the son was still a far way off, the father ran to him. And, and if the father sees him while he's a long way off, it implies that the father was searching for him and looking for him. He's not just waiting on the son to come to him. He's pursuing the lost son. And when he sees him in this beautiful moment, he, he throws himself on top of the son. He hugs him and he, and he starts to kiss him. And that word used for kiss can actually be the word that implies to kiss over and over again. It's a dramatic display of love. Much like when my daughter ran away for that two and a half, three minute window and I panicked if I would ever see her again. And when I finally caught her and when we finally caught her, we just smothered her in love and kisses. Now, we weren't as good as the father that Jesus depicts. We were like, hey, don't you ever do that again, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but, but much like I felt the, felt the joy, the release, the love, Jesus is saying, this is what? Abba, Father, is like. You have to understand, in the Hebrew culture, men didn't run. In fact, 
it's written that it's absolutely disgraceful for a man to run. Ben Sirach, ancient Hebrew literature that's really notable, says this, a man's manner of walking tells you what he is. And I'd like to say, if a man's manner of walking tells you what he is, then Jesus depicts this father as love. Aggressively searching, looking out, not waiting for a son to come to him, but pursuing the son, throwing himself on top of the son and lavishing him in hugs and kisses. Jesus' first audience would have been mind blown. They would say, this, this, this can't be true. The father goes one step further as the son's kind of getting out his little repentant spiel. It seems as if the dad cuts him off and he says, hey, Go get him a robe, go get him a ring, probably a signet ring, and go get him some shoes because tonight we're having a party. See, remember, the son does the most shameful thing in the village. And so he doesn't just have to face his father, he has to face his entire village. And so the fact that the father runs to him while he's still a long way off and he drapes himself over him and he gives him a robe, this is symbolic of the son receiving his father's protection and his provision. If the father welcomes him back as a son, then there's nothing his village can do to him. Then the father takes it one step further and he gives him this ring. And if it's a signet ring, which is the ring that's most often talked about in biblical literature, then a signet ring uh, implies authority, but also trust. And this is what's mind-blowing to me. The father looks at the son, basically, and says, I still trust you. Think of that. You who are sitting there in your sh shame, wallowing in the sinful things, and you're like, man, God doesn't want me. He doesn't believe in me. This God's angry with me. No, Jesus said this, this father longs to even trust you again. This is wild. And the last one's my favorite. Shoes on his feet. See, in the days of the slave trade, one of the first things they would do is they would take slaves' shoes as a symbol of saying, you're not going anywhere. You're my property now. And the father in this Hebrew Middle Eastern culture does the exact opposite. He gives him shoes and he says, you're a free man to come and go as you please. And then he kills the fattened calf and they have a good old fashioned barbecue. Excessive grace, incredible love. Something that Jesus' first audience wouldn't really know what to do with and how to grasp it. And I wish that the story ended there because I'd actually get you out on time today, even in a baptism Sunday. But it doesn't. And so I can't be done if the story's not done. Somebody's not enjoying the party. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Because shouldn't a party be like that, right? So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what was going on? Your brothers come home. He replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. 
and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, yeah, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, that one. He squandered your property with prostitutes, which we don't even know that's true, comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And I wanna spend just a few minutes talking about the reality of the older son. But first, back to verse 11. It says, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Now, if what Bailey's saying is true in his um, exegetical work on Luke from, from a Middle Eastern lens when he was living there, he makes this really interesting argument. He says that, in a lot of Middle Eastern settings that somebody was supposed to come in and play peacemaker. And so if this was really happening between the father and the younger son, there's a strong possibility that the two sons are brought up at the beginning of the parable to show you how complicit and how quiet the older son is in this whole thing happening. See, if the, if the, if the older son really cared about his brother, he would step into the conflict. Even more so, if the older son really cared about his father and saw the anguish caused, then he might just do something about it and try to play peacemaker. Not only that, but based on the words that we see in verse 11, the Bible says that uh, the father splits the inheritance in two. So in that moment, this older son, the heir to the, to the family um, inheritance, he already knows what was belonged to him, and he doesn't revoke his inheritance being given to him. So what you see is an older son who really doesn't care very much. He's apathetic to the entire situation. He doesn't seem to care too much until his brother comes home, and then he's mad. He hears the Cupid shuffle going on. <laughs> he smells barbecue. He finds his servant, grabs him real quick. Dude, what is going on in there? Bro, I don't know if you heard this, but your brother's back. And your dad's like pulled out all the stops. There's confetti cannons. There's fireworks. Like, like, like I've never seen your dad get so low uh, in, in the limbo before. It's incredible, man. <laughs> And the son is angry. I mean, he's livid. And the text says something very important. It says that the father went out and he pleaded with him. So just as the father goes out and he's looking for the younger son, the father goes out and he's looking for the older son too. Here's what you need to understand. You might understand the prodigal's part of my message, but let me explain a party foul. A party foul, according to Wikipedia, uh, an act or an instance of unpleasant or unacceptable behavior at a party or other social gathering. So when you're partying and you're in a conversation and somebody spills a drink, everybody be like, oh, party foul. Or somebody breaks a chair or a table or a centerpiece, oh, that's a party foul. Well, this is a party foul by the older son. See, as an heir who's quite arguably already been given his inheritance... This party is just as much on him as it is on his father. He was expected to show up, 
to rejoice in his brother's homecoming and to welcome his brother back in. And if he had any issues at all, he can wait till after the party's over instead of causing his father shame. See, the Middle Eastern culture being one built on honor and shame would have seen the older, brother's sin, older son's behavior as sinful and extremely disrespectful. It might not be at the level of the younger sons, but it's not far off. And, and we get this really illuminating uh, word that the brother says, going back to Luke 15, 28 through 32. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders and you couldn't even give me a young goat or calf. See, I don't know if you caught it. But even though the older son is an heir, even though he's welcomed in, even though he's an estate sharer and a property sharer with his daddy, he's unable to see himself as a son and he sees himself as a slave. See, the reality of the elder son is this. One son goes into the party, one son does not. And it's actually the younger son that goes in. The story of the older son ends in a cliffhanger because he can't get over his anger that his father would welcome his brother back. And if the story is putting you in tension today, it's because it's supposed to. Because what you're supposed to observe in this moment is this. We can appear seemingly close to God in proximity, but we can be terribly far from him in heart. You could do the church thing. You could do the serving thing. You could, you could even read your Bible somehow and still miss it. The Pharisees did it all the time. They knew the Bible better than anybody. And yet, without a true, genuine relationship with Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit, you could miss it all. But remember that linchpin I told you about at the beginning that kind of unites the stories together. It's joy. It's joy. I want to ask you a question today. When's the last time you experienced joy in your relationship with Jesus? Not duty. Not religious obligation. Not, well, I'm, I'm just showing up to church because I'm trying to model the, re the right thing for my kids. Joy. Jesus said when lost things get found, we should have joy. When lost people come back home, we should have joy. The father, the father's just looking for sons. Doing whatever he can to show love to sons. So they stop seeing themselves as servants and slaves. And so that they start partaking in his joy. Psalms 51.12 says this. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. But here's what I think happens a lot of times in church. Especially when you've been in this thing for so long. That you're just trying to cultivate a willing spirit. But there is no joy. And guess what? You know how long that willing spirit will stay willing? If there's no joy of the intimacy of knowing him, it won't be very, very willing very long. 
This story is meant to shake us to our core and cause us to reevaluate things. Galatians 5, through 23, Jonathan hit on this last week. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, and then a bunch of other ones. But I only want to focus on the first three, love, joy, peace. Because guess what? If you don't see yourself as the beloved, you'll never experience the joy of relational intimacy. And if you don't experience true relational joy, You'll never have real peace. When's the last time, saints, that you've had joy in his presence? When's the last time you danced in his presence? When's the last time you shouted in his presence? When's the last time you lifted your hands and wept out of great joy in his presence? See, there's only two responses to today's message to two types of prodigals. The first is the younger sons who run away. Younger sons or daughters who run away. And what Jesus would say to them is, come home, come home. But maybe you identify with the older son today. You've been doing the church thing for a while now, but you're just trying to get the God monkey off of your back. You haven't looked at somebody in church in a long time and said, hey, I'm good, I'm fine, and really meant it. For you today, Jesus would say, come inside, come close. I got my license late. I got my license when I was 18, and, um, and uh, I had only had it for two months, and it was Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I was at a party, uh, my girlfriend at that time, her family was hosting a Memorial Day weekend party, and so uh, I was there, and uh, I left the party, and I was driving home, and it was probably about five o'clock, six o'clock at night, and uh, I saw that terrifying little thing that happens to us sometimes when we drive too fast, uh, you know, and uh, those shining lights. It was the first time in my life I ever saw those. Well, no, it wasn't, uh, but uh, in, in the context of driving, it was, and um, this guy pulls me over, and I'm angry. I'm just, oh, my God. And uh, he says, sir, where are you coming from? I said, oh, my girlfriend was having a Memorial Day weekend party. And, yeah, and he's like, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, no, sir. He said, you were going a 53 and a 35. And I was like, oh, man, that's not that bad. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he takes my license, he takes my registration, he goes back to his car and he comes back and I'm like, I'm like bla text blasting everybody that I can. Pray for me, I can't afford to get this ticket, I don't have any money, my parents are gonna take my license, I just got them. I was 18 but it was like I still live in their house or so whatever and I was like, and I was so like angsty, frustrated, my heart's beating and the guy comes back and I'm just prepared for just this man in authority to just drop the hammer on me and he looks at me and he says, hey sir, He's like, I don't think you're a menace to society. So I'm gonna let you off with a warning. And then he reaches in his pocket and he says, and also, why don't you take that girlfriend of yours out? And he hands me two gift cards to Chick-fil-A. And I said, dang, I should get pulled over more often. <laughs> See, in the moment when I'm waiting for an authoritarian figure to drop the hammer on me, to really let me have it, to, to give me the ticket, to punish me, he extends grace. 
And I just think that there's somebody in here that for so long, you could be in the church, you could be out of the church, you, you just have this vision in your mind of an angry God waiting to drop the hammer on you when you sin, wait, waiting to corner you with ridicule and rebuke. And I will tell you this, God does wanna corner you today, but he wants to corner you in love. He wants to corner you in his embrace. He wants to in, in corner, corner you in grace and mercy. Would you let him do it this morning? Would you let him do it this morning? If you join me in prayer, Jesus, I just ask God that we would take your word seriously today. I thank you, God, for the limitless grace that we can find in you, that you're constantly calling lost sons and daughters home that you long for us to receive and accept the invitation to a relationship with you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, meet us where we are, younger sons and older sons alike. Corner us in grace, because you're not looking for servants and slaves. You're looking for your kids. Lord, let there be a divine homecoming today. In Jesus' name, amen.